I want to say welcome to you. Thank you for being here this Resurrection Sunday. We counted a privilege to gather together, and, and we counted a special privilege to be able to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ because he did not remain dead. On Friday night, we celebrated the fact that he did die for our sins. And today, we're going to celebrate the fact that he did not remain dead, but in fact, he is risen. You can say it again. Come on. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for being with us. Uh, Turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 18. This is the Apostle John writing from an eyewitness account. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter, he went out with the other disciple. And they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Both of them were running together. They stooping, they looked to see in, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni! which means teacher, and Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and and that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, would you help us see your word afresh this morning. May your words mean 
something to us this morning. May your words cut through the unbelief in our lives. May we hear you speaking. May we hear you through your word, where we see the truth of your word and believe anew in your resurrection life. And Lord, may we believe in the fact that we can have resurrection life in you. God, you are the only one who can make the dead to live. Jesus, thank you that you've proven that you have power over death, that you are the living one. And Lord, would you make us all believe that you have the power to make alive. May we trust in you this morning. Lord, enable me to speak by your word. Lord, it may be to speak your words by your spirit. Enable all of us to hear your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember driving through Yellowstone Park just a couple years ago. And as we were driving as a, together as a family, we had, we had gotten finished late at the lodge there at Yellowstone looking around, and it was, it was well past dark. And in Yellowstone, there's no street lamps, there's no lights, and this is a narrow two-lane road. And, and you have, um, at times, you have these thick, dense um, bunches of trees on either side in the hills, and so you can't see very well. And, and even though our headlights were on, our high beams were on, and there was no one else on the road, we were we were heading back far too late. And and it, and it seemed like the the darkness just kind of sucked up the light. And and if I if I based the drive on just what I could see with my headlights, it would have been foolish. If I thought, you know what, I'll just go the normal speed limit through Yellowstone at night based on what I could see, then, then I wouldn't have gotten into trouble. Because as we were driving, I, I knew something. I, I knew what was reality. I knew the truth was that there are a lot of animals in Yellowstone, if you've ever been there before. And they're, they're wild animals roam all over the place, even during the daylight. But at nighttime, they come out even, even more. And so because I knew that truth, because I knew that fact, I, I, I changed how I drove. I drove more slowly, and I drove more cautiously and carefully. And, and so, in fact, we actually did. We saw a, a wolf run across our path, and then a little later on, another one. And then we saw a, a group of bison that were blocking the road. And had I been driving based on what I could see, I, we would have hit them. But as we're driving along, I remember kind of chuckling at the darkness and thinking how eerie it was that we couldn't see. And so I turned on a song. I turned on the song, The Sound of Silence, and it, and it begins with this, this phrase, Hello, darkness, my old friend. And uh, I thought that was comical. It, it's not really true, though, is it? Darkness isn't uh, our old friend. It keeps us from seeing. It keeps us in the shadows. It keeps us from seeing what's really there. And the song later alludes to materialism that keeps people from seeing what's true. But you know, when it's dark, it's hard to see things as they really are. When it's, when it's dark, you lose perspective. When it's dark, you can't see your way. You can't see who's there. It's hard to see what's there in the dark. Then did you notice how John begins this passage? He begins this passage on purpose. He didn't have to note how dark it was outside, but this is, John is a, a literary master. Whenever he writes, he writes in his settings. He writes that so that we see through the setting that he chooses, through the words that he chooses, the scenes that he chooses. He, he, he's writing about historical reality, but the way he writes is meant to draw our attention to something. That, that fact is that Mary, she's in darkness. The disciples are in darkness. Jesus has, has died on Friday. They could not go to his tomb as they customarily would on Friday and Saturday because it was the Sabbath and and they were barred from going certain distances, and the grave was too far to travel on a Sabbath. And so 
the first day of the week they go, but they're still in darkness. They don't know yet that Jesus has resurrected. They're in darkness. And so Mary, she goes to the tomb, and it says, while it was still dark. And, and I, I think what John's trying to get us to show is, and, and through the, the narrative here, is he's not just showing that, that she's still in the dark, he's showing that Peter's still in the dark, John is still in the dark, until they see. And he's trying to get us to see that we really can't trust what we see, we can't trust what we think, we can't trust what we know to be true based on what we observe and what we think. Because that's what Mary, that's why she's still in darkness. Mary Magdalene, she's still in darkness because she is, she's seen Jesus be killed. She's seen them take him away. And she's going expecting already that the stones still be there. And she's going to mourn outside. And, and I think John is trying to get us to see this. He's driving the reader subtly to see what the basis for our belief is. And I, I think the question that we need to take away this morning from it is, what is the basis for our belief? What's the basis for your belief? Mary was basing her belief thus far on what she could see. She was basing her belief thus far on what she believed about the human body and that she knew that, that humans die, they don't come back to life. And she was basing her belief in the fact that, that Jesus died. And there's no way he could be born again. She didn't expect that. She expected a different kind of Messiah. She was trusting her eyes. She was trusting her sight. But our sight can't always be trusted. We can't rely on sight alone. I think John's drawing our attention to that, that truth very sharply because he uses phrases in all throughout the narrative here. She, she saw, and then she ran, and, and Peter, John saw, and then Peter saw. But really, they don't see. They don't see because they're in unbelief. The light of the resurrection had not yet dawned on her, so she goes in the darkness not only of the morning, but in her morning, she goes in the darkness of unbelief. She's expecting a stone to be there, but... She gets there and she sees it's been rolled away. And so she's probably fearful. She says, she says to them, she goes, she says, they, they, they've taken away our Lord. She saw the body taken away and now she thinks that they've taken him away. She still didn't believe what she saw. She still didn't believe what was true. She didn't remember the fact that Jesus had said that the Son of Man must be killed and on the third day rise. He must. It's an imperative. He must. In fulfillment of the scriptures, he must. But she was still thinking that he'd been taken, so she runs. She tells Peter and John, and, and, I, and I love this scene. It, it's, this, is, this is only something that could be written from an eyewitness account because there's so many nuances here. And so she runs, and she's in a hurry, and you can imagine her in the dark running as she goes and she's knocking on Peter's door. Peter's probably not awake yet and, and John was staying with him and so she knocks on the door and they, they, you know, I can imagine Peter's like, what? They've taken him? Let's go see. You know, here's the guy who drew on the sword before when they'd taken Jesus and, and so they run. They're passionate men. They love Jesus and they go out and both of them are running together and, and John adds this little first person narrative that they're running together but, but this other disciple he beat, he beat Peter. <laughs> I love that. He says he reached the tomb first, this other disciple. And later on we see that John is this other disciple who's writing. He's being modest here. But John was probably much younger than Peter, so I'll give him that. At least I like to because I'm getting older. So They're both probably scandalized. They're both indignant that the body of Jesus would have been moved and taken. 
because they didn't believe that anything could be true except that he was taken away, that he didn't have the power over death. They must have been so confused on a Saturday. All day long they had spent in mourning. All day long they had wondered, what happened? He died, and none of them expected it. You know, to say that the resurrection is proven because all the apostles and disciples expected it, and so that's what they saw is what they expected, that's, that's complete hogwash because they didn't expect it. That's true from all the narratives. They didn't expect it. They weren't looking for Jesus to rise again. They should have been, but they weren't. They should have been because they should have listened to his words and the words of Scripture about the Messiah, but they didn't do that. So they go, they check it out, they, go, they stoop. John gets there, he's a little tentative, which is kind of like his nature. And he stoops and he, he looks in and, and he sees inside this, this cave in the stone and he sees these grave clothes lying there, but he doesn't go in. And Peter, it's funny, you can just imagine Peter getting up, he's like, oh, let me see, and he kind of goes in there and he barges into the tomb. It's Peter's personality coming out. He goes past Past John, past Mary Magdalene, and he goes in there, and, and what he saw was surprising. You see, if grave robbers had come, they would have taken these fine linens that had, had, had wrapped the body of Jesus. They would have taken them away. They wouldn't have left them. And, and, and that day, they were really concerned that grave robbers would come and, and steal from the tomb, steal whatever was valuable there. But that was clearly not the case. Grave robbers had not come. Because his grave clothes lied there. And some people believe that they still lied there as, as if his body was in it and just passed through it. We're not sure that's possible. It's likely. Maybe like a chrysalis from what a butterfly has emerged. We're not sure. But then we see that this face cloth, it was lying folded neatly like somebody had taken the time to take it off their face, folded it up and sat it there. Grave robbers wouldn't do that. Something else has happened. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, verse 8 tells us, he, he went in and he believed. He saw and he believed. Oh, he's beginning to replace unbelief with belief because he sees that this, this isn't grave robber. Something else has happened here. The supernatural evidence that John sees of, of these grave clothes lying there, the, the, the folded face cloth, it's enough for him to believe. You know, you know, yet he says something here that's meant to draw our attention to where the basis for our belief is supposed to be. And he says something here. He says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture. You see, there was an expectation that they would have the scripture as a basis for their belief. John writing many years later admits, we didn't understand the scripture because if, if we had understood the scripture, we would have believed. Why? Because all the Old Testament scriptures, they point to the fact that the Messiah reigns and rules forever, that there is a messianic king, that he does not remain dead, but he rules forever. That cannot be if the Messiah remains dead. He says, we didn't understand from the scripture. And what he's saying is we should have. The scripture should have been the basis for our belief, not our sight. And yet our sight, it, it fooled us until it was irrefutable. And he's trying to draw attention to the fact that the faith based on the witness of the word of God is superior to what we can see. And in fact, that's what Jesus will tell Thomas in, in our passage next week. And, and in, in the reality, that's, that's true for each and every one of us, that faith based on God's word is far superior than what we can see because the reality is, you know, sometimes I think, well, I would have loved to have been there and seen it. Well, maybe, maybe then I would have believed. Well, it, that's not really true because Jesus, he told this parable about this rich man who goes to hell 
and Lazarus. And this rich man says, hey, if you'll just send Lazarus, then they'll believe. And Jesus says, if they haven't believed all the prophets, there's no way they're going to believe now. And what Jesus and John are telling tell us is that Scripture is more than enough basis for belief. And in fact, for us, it's actually better because we have the whole Old Testament and all of these passages that point to Jesus and we can see their fulfillment. And then we get to see the living Savior alive. It's far better that we have all of God's word for us today to believe in. That's far better than what we can see. This entire witness to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the whole Bible pointing to Christ and the risen Lord, it's, it's the best testimony. But you know what? Sometimes we forget that and we base it on what we can see. We base our belief on what's around us and what we feel, what we experience. Where's your belief? What's the basis for your belief? Scripture is the only trustworthy basis for belief. Our sight alone can't be trusted. Maybe John was thinking about scriptures like Psalm 16, 9, where he says, he says, therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. If not through the whole Old Testament, it testifies about the fact that the Messiah is reigning forever. When he told, in 1 Samuel, he's, he's, God spoke to David and he made a promise and he says that, that there will be a king on the throne forever. That can only be a messianic king who's resurrected. This son of man must rise from the dead, according to Scripture. Well, the disciples, they don't get that. Peter probably is still in unbelief here because John doesn't mention that. He's being kind. Peter's one of his best buds, so he's being kind to him. It says, then the disciples go back to their homes. Now, I, I wonder, Peter, John believed, but h- how much did he understand? Because he, it doesn't say he goes and tells anybody about it. He doesn't go and share this great news. So his belief was at least still nascent or very early on in understanding. He's not putting all the dots together because it says they all go back to their own homes. These disciples go back to their homes and from the other gospels we hear that there were other women there and they probably went back to their homes. But, but there's someone else. She, she's still in mourning. She's in grief. She doesn't see. She doesn't believe. Still. Look at verse 11. It says Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. This is a sad scene because she still thinks Jesus is dead. She still lives as if Jesus is dead. How how about you? Do you you still live as if Jesus is dead? Sometimes functionally, I know I can. I can functionally live as if he's not really ruling, reigning, and ascended to the Father. As if my sins have not been paid for. As if I don't have new life. She's living that way. She's sad Mary Magdalene was the one who Jesus had rescued from, from seven demons. He had, he had made her life whole. He had, he had accepted her into community, whereas before um, sh- she was obviously engaged in evil practices. She may have been engaged in, in other bad things, but she definitely was practicing evil because she had made room for demonic spirits, and seven spirits inhabited her. Jesus delivered her. He gave her a new life, a new purpose, She had followed him. She had followed his teaching closely. She had seen him as her teacher. But now he's gone. She watched him die. She watched him take him away. And 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 now it seems, think about this, she couldn't even grieve like she wanted to. She gets to the tomb and there's nobody there. His body's been stolen. She's inconsolably, inconsolably sad. But as she weeps, she's bewildered. She, She stoops down. We're not sure. Maybe there's a bright light that came out of the tomb. And so you see her stooping down 
and she looks in the tomb and she, instead of seeing just the grave clothes, she sees these grave clothes. And at the head of the grave clothes and at the foot of the grave clothes, she sees two angels. Now, I think John is intentionally showing us that detail because there's another place where you see two angels. And that's the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. See, the Ark of the Covenant was built, so it was a place where God's presence was. And so they would come and they would make sacrifice and they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And over the mercy seat were these two angels and they were their wings shrouding, covering the mercy seat. And so figuratively we see this this place of mercy where his blood has been splattered and there's one at the head and one at the feet. But the crazy thing is she still doesn't believe. She sees but she doesn't see. She doesn't believe. She sees these two angels in white and her response shows she was still blind because of unbelief. And the question that, that John seems to be wanting the reader to apply to themselves, the question that we need to apply to ourselves this morning is, where are we blind because of unbelief? If, if she was blind, and certainly we have that propensity as well, right? Where are you blind because of unbelief? Now you may think, I'm not blind. Really? When you wake up in the morning and you're, you're having a good day, and you think that, wow, I've had this great day, so God's really pleased with me because I've had a great day and I've been in the Word and I've prayed and I've said all the right things and I made my wife and kids breakfast and I was pleasant to people driving and I let them in and I've had a wonderful day. Well, you're blind in unbelief because you have failed to believe that your confidence is in the righteousness of Christ alone and you put your confidence in your own righteousness. So reverse, what about this? You wake up in the day and you, you say, you know what, I had a rotten day, I woke up late, I hit the snooze button five times, I'm a loser, I'm a bonehead, I'm late getting out, I'm in a rush, I'm honking my horn, I'm swearing at people in front of me because they cut me off, I get to work late, I get yelled at, and, and, and today is a rotten day, my kids expected lunch, I didn't make lunch for them, they went to school empty-handed, whatever, I've had a terrible day, God must be angry with me. You're blind because of unbelief. You don't believe that your righteousness is in Christ. But these two angels, they were sitting there showing off these empty grave clothes as if to say, look, he's risen. Behold, the debt has been paid. The sacrifice has been made. The tomb is empty. But she doesn't get it. And so they speak a word of gentle correction to her. They aren't actually curious why she's crying. I mean, these angels are not dumb. They know that Jesus had died, that she was one of his followers. They're not dumb. Angels, they were sent to announce the good news and explain that to people. But so they ask her a gentle question. They say, woman, why are you weeping? Because it's the most inappropriate thing in light of the fact that Jesus has been resurrected that we would weep as if he's not. And so she keeps crying, which, by the way, if you were a first century reader, you're seeing that there's angels there, and she keeps crying. You're like, what's wrong? What's wrong with her? Well, her unbelief has blinded her. Where has your unbelief blinded you? She's unable to see the truth. She can't grasp the reality of what's happened. She doesn't believe that Jesus could have risen, but if she had gotten it, she would have understood that, that the Lord's resurrection is, is the greatest cause for rejoicing. Because it means that everything that Jesus has said is true about her. Everything that Jesus said is true about you. 
Do you believe that? It means that Jesus has power over life and death. Do you believe that? The resurrection is like a certified letter from God. It's, it's declaring that Christ, in Christ, a new humanity has been born. It, it means something for us that the sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of all who believe in him has been paid in full, that Jesus has conquered sin and death. Do you believe? I can imagine the angels were bewildered because after all, these tears were tears of sadness, not gladness. And we're not exactly sure what she thought of him, but her tears, maybe they blinded her vision or something. I, <laughs> you might be, expect her to be shocked, right? You might expect her to, when she sees his angels and they ask her a question, woman, why are you weeping? She might be like, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be weeping. I, I see now. Or she might expect, you might expect her to say, well, where is he? Or why are you here? Or what does this mean? Or any number of responses, but she doesn't. She's still blind in unbelief and... It's surprising, and then, then this, this detail is even more surprising. She goes from looking at angels talking to her, and she turns around. <laughs> she turns away. She's still not making the connection. She, she turns around, and when she turns around, she sees Jesus standing there. She sees Jesus standing there. She didn't recognize him. Most of us have seen those surprise videos. I don't know if you've ever spent time in a rabbit hole watching these surprise videos of of service members when they come home from the war and they surprise a family member, a relative, and you know sometimes there's a, uh, a mom and she's watching TV in the living room or something and, and her son or daughter walk in the room and they just stand there right behind and somebody says, hey mom, and she turns around and sees them and there's shock, there's tears of joy, there's gladness, there's an exclamation. We don't see any of that positive response here. This is not a, a surprise reunion video. Jesus has snuck up on her in a sense and he's right there and she turns around. And maybe I think Jesus was the last person she expected to see because she didn't expect him to rise. She doesn't know it's him. But to, to weep in the presence of the resurrected Lord doesn't make sense. It's out of place. It doesn't fit the occasion at all, does it? It's like going to a wedding, and I don't mean crying tears of joy when they get married, but crying because they got married. That would be out of place. We once went to a wedding, my wife and I won't say whose wedding it was, many, many, many years ago, and we were shocked because at the wedding, it was sad. It was, we, you know, I'm all for it being a sobering occasion when two people are joined together. But there at the, when they pronounce the man and wife, I'm used to this celebration. When that happened, they pronounce the man and wife. And Julie and I go to stand up and everybody else is sitting down. And they're sad. I'm like, oh, uh, wrong crowd. And it, it was odd um, to have sadness in a moment of joy. And that was like Mary, she's, she's weeping here, but she shouldn't have been. So Jesus gently asks her the question. She says, woman, why are you weeping? He's raised from the dead. Why are you weeping? She's still looking for a corpse instead of her victorious Savior. She's, she's expecting to see a dead person in a tomb, and she sees her Savior alive, and she, she can't see. Her unbelief has blinded her. Just like our unbelief keeps us blind at times. We know the truth of Scripture that if we believe in Jesus that we have new life, but sometimes, you know what, we don't actually believe that. You ever feel that way? 
I know that, that Scripture says that in Christ we are a new creation, but I don't feel like a new creation, so I don't, I don't really believe. Instead, we put our belief in what we see and not what Scripture says. What's the basis for your belief? Sometimes we lack joy and we weep over our sin. And I'm not talking about weeping for repentance, but this kind of condemning. I'm a terrible person. I'll never be better. I'll never change. Because we're not believing the fact that he has changed us. He's made us new. That he's actually made us completely justified and he has set us apart from self and he is sanctifying in us and, and he will complete the good work that he's began. But we don't believe that. At least I, I don't at times. Sometimes we, we don't think that Jesus loves us. You ever been stuck there? Because in your circumstances, your situation, maybe your sin, maybe yet again, or maybe it's sickness, or maybe it is the death of a loved one, or suffering, and you fail to believe that Jesus loves you. Because you fail to believe the scriptures that the greatest act of love that anyone could ever carry out, Jesus has already done. So he's not withholding any good thing from you. God's not withholding any good thing, Scripture says, because he's already given his son to you. Hopefully I won't knock the guitar down as I'm preaching. So. Our unbelief, though, keeps us thinking that these bad things that happen to us or the bad things in the world around us, that maybe God's left us or maybe God doesn't love us. Maybe those are indicators of a lack of love or care, but John wants to see that, no, there's a basis for belief, and it's in who we, who we have as our Savior. And so Jesus, he, he persists and he pursues Mary. And the questions that he, he's asking to Mary, he says, you know, why are you weeping? And he says, whom do you seek? What kind of Savior are you looking for? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves, is what kind of Messiah do you expect? What kind of Messiah are you looking for? Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? What kind of Messiah are you looking for? Are you looking for the kind of Messiah that's going to give you worldly things, riches, perhaps? And so if you don't get that, you think, I have no Messiah? Are you looking for the kind of Messiah that gives you all the health you ever need, and if you don't get that, you think, I have no Messiah? If you, what kind of Messiah are you looking for? He says, whom are you seeking? What kind of Messiah you expect those are gently corrective words are you really seeking the messiah here mary are you really seeking jesus the messiah or are you just seeking jesus who was a good man and died it's an invitation to think about the kind of king that she is seeking it's meant to catch our attention what kind of king are we seeking she doesn't catch the hint she responds with what seems like a little indignant. She says, sir, if, if you've taken him, tell me, and then, then I'll go and I'll take him. And there's this whole thing of, in, in chapter 19. They, they took his body, and Joseph and Nicodemus, they took him away, and she thinks that they've taken him. And she goes, well, if you've taken him, give him to me, and then I'll take him, as if Jesus is bound by the authority of people taking him. See, Jesus has all authority. No one can take and do things with him. Jesus is risen. He's not bound by what people do to him. And see, so she turns around. She thinks this must be a gardener. Now, now she, was, she spoke better than she knew. He's the master gardener. But that's not what she meant. 
But here's the thing, Jesus was merciful and so she turns, she doesn't recognize it, she thinks he's been taken away, she's still not believing, she's persisting in unbelief and yet here's what happens with one word. It's, it's this powerful word. With one word, Jesus speaks one word and she believes. And the question that, I, that we're left with is, as we, we see this encounter and we see John's note earlier when he says they did not yet believe the scripture that he must rise and yet now we see the word incarnate you see John has introduced his very book he says in the beginning was the word and now the word is speaking his word to her and it's personalized to her it's just one word it's, it's Mary and she believes the question for us is are, are we believing in the word are we believing in Jesus' word to us with one word her eyes were open she sees clearly her life is transformed and she hears the risen Lord calling her name. Because you know what? The good shepherd, he calls his sheep and they know him. And what she did not understand through sight, through hearing the word, she believes. Jesus has come to her and persisted and pursued her so that she might see her eyes have been opened. I love the way there's a commentator R.V. Tasker, he puts it, he says, never was there a one-word utterance that more, was more charged with emotion than this. The life that the good shepherd has laid down for the sheep has been laid down for each separate sheep. In his resurrection life, it's available for every single believer, but under conditions different from those to which Mary has been accustomed. When she tries to cling to her master and keep him aside, she's told she must cease from touching him for the satisfaction or desire would frustrate the ultimate purpose the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus suffered and rose again in order that he might ascend and in the virtue of his work on Calvary intercede for all who would draw near to God through him. Are you believing in his word? Are you drawing near to him through his word? Well, immediately she, excla- she exclaims, Rabbi, and she, she clings probably. She, she probably falls at his feet and she's clinging to him. And now when Jesus is saying, don't cling to me, he's, I, I don't believe that he's, he's being corrective in the sense that he's saying, don't cling to me. No, what he's saying is you, you don't, you don't need to cling to me as if I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be with you. I'm not, I'm not ascended my father yet. I'm here. I'm going to be here for a while. But go. Right now, it's not the time to just cling to me. When you understand the good news, you're meant to go and share it. So it's wonderful. Celebrate that. But part of that celebrating is going and telling other people about this good word. And... There were sad disciples who needed to hear the news of the resurrection firsthand. They needed to hear the word. They needed to see for themselves through the word that he was alive. Just like today, there's many broken and needy people. Maybe you're one of those. You need to hear the word of God that Jesus is resurrected. He has power over death. Maybe you need to place your faith in Jesus and see that if you repent of your sins, if you confess your sins and say that I, I can't be good enough on my own, I can never be pleasing to God I, I, on my own. I'm, I'm, God, forgive me, I've sinned against you. And, and you place your faith in the fact that, that Jesus was a sinless sacrifice in your place. And that he's risen, proven that his sacrifice was sufficient. And, and it was finished on the cross and it was sufficient and accepted by God. And that he has power over life and death. So he has power over your life and your death. And he can give you new life. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're here and you're a believer. And yet you have been unbelieving and sad. This past year has been kind of rough. 
Where's your belief? Are you believing in his word? Jesus goes and he commissions her to tell other people. And there's something about sharing the word that gives her joy as well. They need to know and understand that Jesus has conquered death, that he lives. He says that I have ascending to the Father. This, this whole period from when he was resurrected all the way up until he physically ascends is the period when he is ascending, when he is taking up his throne and reigning. And where is he now? He has taken up his throne and he has begun to reign. That's what we need to tell people. Go and tell them that he's ascended. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, he's ascended. He is reigning and ruling. I loved Revelation because we get to see that the ruling, reigning Lord is over all things. No matter what, how bad things look like here on earth, no matter how awful things are, no matter how demons rage and the beast rages and the dragon rages, you know who's ruling and reigning over all of that? Jesus. He's ascended to the Father. They need to see that. They need to hear that. They need to hear that he's ascended. You need to hear that as well. You need to hear this word and believe in it. No matter what you see around you. Where are you putting your hope for belief? Isn't it stuff around you? Hopefully it's not in politics and all the other stuff we see. Hopefully it's not in health and wealth. Hopefully it's not in everything going well. But hopefully it's in the risen Savior, the ascended Lord. But that's not all they needed to hear. Did you catch that? He says, my father and your father. Wow. That's changed. Do you know that God, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you need to hear this word and believe this word? That just like Jesus' father is God, they have a union that is close, that's inseparable, that can never be broken, that is eternal. It's a bond, never broken. He says, my father, your father. You have, in Christ, that same unbreakable bond with the Father. My God and your God. My Father and your Father. Because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we have sonship, we have daughtership, if that's a word. (laughs) Do you see that? Do you hear that? Do you believe his word? In the end, I love it. It's not it's not dark any longer. And she is in the light because she has heard the word. And hearing the word makes all the difference. Mary obeys, she goes, she tells him what she had seen. And, and, and that's really what we're called to do as well. Uh, this morning we are going to close with receiving communion again. You're like, well, didn't we just do that Friday night? If you were here Friday night, we, we received communion. Friday night, we, you, by the way, you can open this little top, top thing so you're not distracted because it's hard to get into these things sometimes. <laughs> if you don't have a, a communion cup, um, raise your hand and we'll have one of the ushers get some to you. Anybody not have a communion cup if you'd like one? All right, excellent. In the back over here, they need a communion cup right there. Wonderful, excellent. What we are doing is we are remembering We're remembering what's true about Jesus. We're remembering now what's true because of his word. Jesus said on the night, I mean, uh, Paul tells us on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he says, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. What we want to remember tonight, today versus Friday night is we're remembering the death on Friday night and what he paid for all of our sins. Now, 
with the resurrection, we're remembering that our life is united with his life. As his body was raised, so he gives life to our mortal bodies. That one day we will be raised. Because we remember his resurrection, we have hope for the future resurrection. Because Jesus is now at the Father's side in body. We too one day will be at the Father's side in body. So let's eat the bread together remembering that. Jesus, we come to you and we say thank you. Thank you that you did not stay dead. Thank you that you have power over death. That you have conquered death. That you've conquered hell. You've conquered our sins. You have paid for our sins. You've taken the wrath of God. And it doesn't remain. Now in you we are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. In you we have life. And it is held for us. Imperishable. Undefiled. Kept in heaven. Unfading for us. This great treasure of eternal life in you. We thank you in your name. Amen. Well, go ahead and take your second half here and peel that little foil up. Friday night I was really struggling. So go ahead and pull it up now if you can. What we were remembering Friday night is that his blood was spilled for us. What I want to remember today is there's a mercy seat. His sacrifice has already been sprinkled and the tomb is empty. No more sacrifices to be made. Once the angels left there, there was no more sacrifice. There was no more. It was once and for all. And in and, and, and his blood, it secured something for us. When, when the kings of old, they would write a contract and they would stamp it, they would seal it with this wax and then they would take their, their royal signet ring and they'd put it in the wax and they'd seal it. And it was signified that it, it carried all the weight and authority of their name, of who they were, of their power, their ability. Well, well, God has written a new covenant with us and he's written this new covenant on our hearts. And you know what it's sealed with? It's not sealed with wax. It's, it's sealed with the blood of Christ. This covenant is unbreakable. So let's drink the juice remembering that this morning. Jesus, thank you that you have given us new life. May we believe that. May we believe in the fact that your blood not only has washed away our sins, but has guaranteed us new life. And so now in you we have hope. And that one day we will be completely free. But right now we have hope each and every day that the same power that you have, that overcame death you're able to overcome all the remnants of death in our life that you are able able to overcome all of the deficiencies and and problems in our life that our faith our hope is in you so lord let us put fresh faith in your word in your name we pray amen